For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Thursday, August 24th. If you talk to people in Hollywood, there's a sense that Apple TV Plus, the Apple streaming service, is kind of on the upswing. Four years after launching, it's got a critical mass of pretty decent shows. I love Blackbird and Severance. It's got one massive hit in Ted Lasso, though that's ended. And they're ramping up original films and animation. And starting this year, it began a 10-year, $2.5 billion deal with Major League Soccer, the U.S. Soccer League, to air games and sell a season pass package. That coincided with maybe the world's biggest soccer star, Lionel Messi, signing an innovative deal with the Miami team that actually gives him a small share of the Apple economics. Apple CEO Tim Cook boasted on his most recent earnings call that the new MLS package is, quote, beating our expectations in terms of subscribers. That's very vague, but at least it shows he's paying attention. That's in part due to Messi, of course. But people in the business sometimes forget that Apple TV Plus is still really small in terms of reach. 15 million subscribers in the U.S., according to analysts, about one-sixth the size of Netflix here, smaller than Peacock. And a lot of people don't even know it exists. We did a brand study at Puck, and Apple TV Plus came in near last in all the categories. To broaden that reach for soccer, Apple's put the games on Fox and Fox Deportes. There was even a messy game last night on Pluto TV, the free ad-supported streamer. And it raises the question, is MLS working for Apple? What does that even mean for a $3 trillion company that's dabbling in premium video with an eye on doing more in the future? My puck colleague, Julie Alexander, wrote a piece on this subject earlier this week. It raised some interesting questions. What's the messy effect at Apple? And does it make more sense for streamers like Apple or Netflix to spend $2 billion on a package of live sports games? Or does it make more sense to spend that money on original content? We're going to get into that today. The messy effect at Apple and sports versus scripted at the streamers. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Julia Alexander, who is an analyst at Parrot Analytics and a contributor at Puck, where I work. Welcome, Julia. Hey, thanks for having me again, Matt. So before we get into Messi and the MLS effect, I want to talk a little bit about Apple TV Plus in general, because you wrote a piece for Puck this past week 
And it had a startling number to me in it. And that is that Apple TV Plus only has 15 million subscribers in the U.S., about 30 million worldwide. 15 million? That is very small. I mean, to put it in context, Netflix has 75 million in the U.S. Disney Plus has like more than 40 million at this point. 15 million, not great. I would say that Apple has done a very good job at curating to one specific type of fan, and they've kind of curated for that fan consistently. So if you look at some of Apple's top performing titles, removing Ted Lasso, you see Silo, you see a lot of these big $100 million sci-fis. But the issue with focusing on one specific type of content is that you're no longer going to be acquiring new customers and you're kind of spending to retain a customer base that you don't need to retain, like they're already there. Adding to the fact that Apple really doesn't have any appealing catalog titles. We've noted at Puck recently that Netflix's biggest show right now is Suits, right? An old USA show. And so Apple has none of that. Add in the fact that the kids' content doesn't seem to be doing that well, which is another focus for Apple TV+. And there's just a lot of throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping that things stick. That makes me feel reminiscent of Netflix circa 2013, (laughs) 2014, but without that catalog to get people interested enough to sign up. And they're spending billions on all these shows that not that many people are watching. Um, And it does make it all the more remarkable that Ted Lasso gets into the Nielsen charts. I mean, it's up there with the most minutes watched of any shows across streaming. And if Apple is doing that with a 15 million customer base, that is extraordinary for Ted Lasso. Yeah, I mean, I think Ted Lasso has the type of effect that even a subscription service like Netflix or Hulu, which has, you know, double, triple, quadruple the size of Apple's subscriber base, would really love to have. And the fact that it also performs well organically on TikTok, which we know sends some traffic to some of these streaming services, really helps. The bigger issue with Apple TV Plus specifically is that because there's no catalog entertainment and because the supply of series across the board is still relatively small, it's not difficult to see that and think this value as, a, as for me as a consumer is not super high when I can go out and pirate a lot of these shows that I might be interested in because I don't want to pay the $7 a month for a service that I'm really not going to use outside of Ted Lasso, and especially if I'm not a sci-fi fan. So when you look at what they're doing with sports and when you're looking what they're trying to do with the expansion into some animation, some expansion into different types of comedy and foreign language programming, it really is trying to do that. But without a catalog, it's extremely difficult to hit that level of penetration they need. And There's just a marketing slash awareness problem with Apple TV+. Plus. I mean, we did a study at Puck in January that showed that only 20% of Apple TV Plus subscribers knew that Ted Lasso was on the platform. And we just did a second study, and that's come up to 33%. Now, I think the premiere of season three helped that. But that's still only a third of people who are getting the service can identify that Ted Lasso is an Apple TV Plus show, and that's their biggest show. I would be amazed to see the numbers on something like Silo or even The Morning Show or C or some of these other lesser watch shows. I would also say that that's in line, I imagine, with if you asked people to name whether The Bear was an FX or a new show, right? It's it's in line with that where the consumer doesn't really 
care so much as they know it's where they go to get it if it's bundled within a larger ecosystem. The issue is that Apple is not. I think Apple is also hindered by the problem that at the executive level, there is this pressure to keep Apple original programming up to a level of quality that is reminiscent of Apple's hardware products. And if you're trying to say we're going to find this consistent stream of TV shows that is the equivalent to our iPhone or our iPad or our Apple Watch, that's an extremely difficult task to do. If you look at the hit rate of Netflix, for example, they have a very low hit rate compared to the supply of shows that they put out. But because the supply is significantly higher than most of its competitors, and because the demand for a portion of that really overtakes its competitors, Netflix can kind of continue operating at the frequency that it does while generating cash flow. If you're Apple, you've got no supply and the demand is constricted to a very specific user base. It's really difficult to grow that product on a, on a subscription level. Right. And Apple is not doing, is it cake or love is blind? I mean, that's not, at least not yet. That's not on brand. But what is on brand, and this is a good transition, is premium sports. And Apple has shown that it wants to dip its toe into the sports world. This deal that they did for Major League Soccer, I think, is a pretty transformative deal for MLS and in many ways for Apple. And we got the first kind of inkling of how MLS is doing on Apple through some third-party data suppliers, including you guys and some others. Uh, Apple, of course, does not reveal this kind of information. But give us a sense of how you think MLS is doing with Messi, especially. Yeah, I think that's the key part of this conversation is that there is an MLS without Messi and an MLS with Messi. Mm -hmm. And even with Messi, there are two different MLSs, right? So if we look at what Messi has done for Apple, when I was looking at the demand for him as a talent compared to all other talents, you can include athletes, celebrities, with it, movie stars, musicians, whatever you have it. Before he joined the MLS, his demand was about top 350 of Keep, all wait, Just of- remind us again what the demand metric is. Parrot does this demand score that takes into account a bunch of different things. Yeah. And so for uh, film and television, that includes consumption data. When we're looking at talent, that's pure social media, search, and social video. And so when we look at Messi, so we're taking in all those different accounts, you know, kind of billions of data points. When we look at it, we can see that he was in the top 350 talent within the United States just before joining the MLS. And when we looked at it after the announcement and when he had started playing, he had jumped into the top 50 and he's been hovering around top 50 to top 75. So clearly demand for one player is making people tune into the games. But the issue is if you look at the number of games and the number of teams in any given league, including the MLS, you have a problem that is almost reminiscent of European soccer in a lot of ways, where you have this one team with one star player. So people are interested in watching him, but that doesn't translate necessarily to the rest of the league. And so what we have to really look at with the numbers, and it's difficult with such opacity in the data, (laughs) is what is the average viewership of a game on MLS with Messi versus without Messi? And then how does that translate to kind of the idea of uh, the perception of value for consumers who are signing up for this league pass, who might be new to soccer fans, who might be just following Messi and so they're interested in it, who might be Apple TV Plus subscribers, so they're getting this at a discount versus what is the average viewership of a game without Messi and how will that translate into the next year or the season after that? But in terms of raw numbers. All we know is that more than a million people 
are watching these games. That was the number that John Arand in Sports Business Journal reported. Do we have any other sense of raw numbers of audience? We don't have any raw sense of audience numbers, so we don't even necessarily know how many of the Apple TV Plus subscribers who got the discount for the MLS season pass have signed up for it. Were they included in that million? If they've doubled that million to two million, how many of them are coming from there? And the reason this is important is because if you look at just kind of the simplified math on it, at $250 million a season, and taking into account that it's a $50 pass times maybe 1 million, maybe 2 million subscribers, you're looking at Apple operating at a loss for the season going forward. That's without taking into account advertising, which we don't know how much Apple is charging, uh, what the CPM rate is for having uh, your ad display on an average MLS game or a game with Messi. And so the real question behind what Apple is doing, which I tried to get to in the latest Puck article, is how much of this is really a streaming play, as in we're going to really try to sign up as many subscribers as possible, or how much of it is Apple just experimenting with the ability to understand the technology needed to broadcast live games, to demonstrate to other bigger leagues that they can bring their content to Apple TV Plus or to Apple and feel pretty confident in it while building out a advertising media center that is in line with what Google did for search and what Facebook did for social in terms of advertising. You know, how much of this is just willing to operate at a bit of a loss for these first few years to demonstrate that they actually can do it while pay TV declines? Well, I think it's all of it, right? I mean, I think that Apple, when you're dealing with their video aspirations, it's funny money. I mean, $2.5 billion for 10 years of soccer is not that much for Apple. And it teaches them how to air live sports. If they want to go after the NBA, which most people think they're going to, they're going to have experience from MLS and the MLB package that they air and some of the other stuff. And they'll be able to deploy that. They also have other benefits. They hired this woman, Lauren Fry, to come in and help build an advertising business on Apple TV+. Plus. That is something that sports is great for because people expect advertising on sports. You can try it out, see how it works. They also have ancillary ways to make money on this. I mean, you got into this a little bit in your Puck article about how there's a halo effect around sports in general and Messi in particular. The thing about sports specifically with streaming too is if we think about what streaming is trying to do, right? It's, it is the ability to commodify attention in an ecosystem where attention went from being very scarce to infinite. But if we look at how that attention share has split with the level of infinite attention that is now available because there's infinite levels of content, what's really being disrupted the most right now is the level of creation of content. So what is not necessarily been as disrupted and therefore it is as a commodity very scarce and operates at a scale that makes it exceptionally valuable compared to almost every other form of entertainment is sports. And so what I think is really important to acknowledge in this conversation is that at the baseline of it all, between the leagues, between the team owners, between the media networks itself, is this question of reach versus revenue at a time when they have severed all their limbs. 
And so they're trying to figure out how long can we be on pay TV and take in this revenue without sacrificing the reach with a younger consumer base that needs to be feel like they're integrated into it so they can go to more games and still have this fandom. And with Apple, what's really interesting about that level of saying, okay, well, we're going to try to commodify this attention is that you have all these different verticals where that attention can be bought and sold again and again and again. So it's not just, oh, well, this is the live game. Now maybe we'll do a docu-series about Messi, which they're doing, and they're going to bring hopefully bring people into that and get them to sign up for Apple TV+. And so if you're Apple... The goal is not just to say like, hey, we can stream this game and we're hoping that we create some level of profit off it. Of course, that's part of it. But it is to show blue chip advertisers and other potential media partners as well as league partners that we can offer you something. We can commodify that attention double, triple, quadruple across all of our different avenues in a branded way that feels prestigious because we're Apple in a way that no other can. Big bet. Not sure what will happen. That is a big bet. And they a lot of things have to go right. And they've got to increase the number of subscribers to Apple TV Plus. Like you can't compete with ESPN when you only deliver 15 million people. I mean, that's just not the same for these leagues. No. So I looked into this recently. And if you look at all of the major streaming platforms, subscription based, in the United States, and let's not even get into global yet, although that's a whole other conversation with the leagues. But if you get into just the U.S. specifically, no streaming service other than Netflix come close to the reach of pay TV still. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. During this transition period where we are not yet there in terms of mass audiences on each of these platforms, how can Apple credibly get in a room with the NBA and say, give us a big chunk of your games and yeah, we'll make sure that 15 million people have access to them? The way that they can do it, which is likely what is going to happen, so you'll say, hey, we want a certain package of games, but we understand that we don't have the reach that you have. What Apple can offer that no other company can, as you said before, it's cash. They can right. say, hey, we'll give you three times what this is worth, because for us, we're really trying to showcase that we can do it. It is what Amazon did, right? But if the leagues are thinking about it, they really need to kind of attack all of their different games with a three-pronged approach, right? You need to have an over-the-air or fast version of something for younger mm. fans who are Free still- Free ad-supported. 
I mean, Apple is doing this with Pluto TV, right? Where they're saying, hey, we're going to give you a messy game. It's Mm -hmm. great free advertising. We want to bring you over. That's where a lot of younger fans are. Then you have your pay TV games, right? You've got some that you're not going to take away from that bundle. You want to be able to give ESPN something. You want to be able to, like, there's there's aspects of it you're not going to change. Yeah, and some of the MLS games are airing on Fox and Fox Deportes in linear to at least expand into that linear audience. So it's not a full Apple exclusive. I get that. This gets back to that really base question of like reach versus revenue. You have to make a sacrifice on one or the other for the next little bit. The question is, if you sacrifice the revenue up front in order to maintain reach to ensure that the longevity of the league, the longevity of the sport is around for the next generation of fans who are not signing up for the pay TV bundle and who need to access their games a different way. If you sacrifice the revenue, do you have enough revenue to kind of continue doing that? If you look at with, with baseball, right, are you going to have to impose salary caps in a, in a really kind of devastating way in order to kind of get through this transitional period. If you sacrifice reach, you say, we're going to give Apple everything because they're going to give us a, a trillion dollars. They're going to give us all this money and we're going to go and do it. If you sacrifice the reach that comes with it from kind of the pay TV, that 55 million pay TV audience that may move over, they may not. Apple doesn't have the audience size that a YouTube has. It doesn't have the audience size that a Netflix has United States. And so you're kind of hoping that people move over, but you're not really guaranteed. And so you say, but we really need that revenue to figure out what we're going to do and get through this transitional period. The answer for a lot of these very complex sports questions, if you talk to anyone who runs the leagues, anyone who is in the media networks, anyone who is in the banks, is that no one has a clear answer because you have to sacrifice one or the other and you have to do it in a way where your plane is still going to take off, hopefully just in time once that end of the runway hits. All right, so let's flip it. And you've posed this question, and it's something that I've often had conversations with people about. If you are a platform that does have some scale, whether it's Amazon, Netflix, Disney, and you've got $2.5 billion to spend, does it make more sense to spend it on a package of premium live sports games, whether it's MLB, NBA, or something else? Or does it make more sense to spend that $2.5 billion on original content, scripted content or reality shows? Where is the money better spent for these companies trying to get users, customers, prevent churn, etc.? It's so difficult to talk about it without a talking about pricing power and how much are you willing to charge your customers in order to kind of keep doing this. Also, it depends on the service, right? Like it would make more sense for one and not the other. You brought up Apple and Amazon very specifically, and I think that's a crucial point to this. If you're them, you don't necessarily have to make that decision yet. Amazon getting closer to it. Amazon definitely having to answer some questions about what are we doing with this level of investment? What are we seeing in it? What is the goal here? My thinking on it is that it's not one or the other. If the future of streaming video and subscription streaming video specifically is going to be heavily based on the ability to charge a significant fee with advertising, then having live sports is crucial. The problem is that it used to be you did not have to have all the sports, right? If you were ESPN, if you were TNT, if you were Fox, you could have different sports. You could have different aspects of the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, sure. But you could also have like, you're going to have cycling, you're going to have racing. It doesn't really matter because everyone's part of this bundle. 
But because you were also partnered with the most sought after entertainment television, you had very low risk of churn. Plus, it was impossible to cancel your cable service. And so if you look at what the streaming services now are doing, they're saying, okay, well, we're going to bring sports over in that audience. But that brings with it a huge churn issue. If, If Disney Plus were to have NBA games and then the NBA fans were like, I don't really care about Star Wars and Marvel, not really for me, I'm going to cancel after the season. You get into what was HBO now circa Game of Thrones, you know, 2015, 2016, right? Where people came in for Game of Thrones, huge, huge, huge customer acquisition. Game of Thrones ended, huge, huge churn issue. And so what you have to do is effectively either create a secondary tier where the sports live, and then you just charge a stronger price for that bundle. Like if you're HBO Max, now Max, you say we're going to have basketball. If you want basketball, you're going to pay $40 a month. And then when basketball is over, you know, you're still paying it, but you get access to it and you're going to get access to all of our content. But even then, it is like you've got to hope that those fans are interested in that level of content. It gets really difficult. Now, you kind of have to say, okay, well, we know that most NFL fans or MLB fans or casual NBA fans, like we know that they operate within that circle. So you have to have aspects of every single league to combat churn. That's incredibly expensive at a time when cash flow is not flowing. And so how do you really make those calls? Apple just did a deal where they got every game for MLS. Like, that's how they solve the problem. Right. And so if you're Apple or Amazon, exactly, you can do that. The problem is if you're Apple, you don't necessarily have the reach. I wrote in in this last puck piece that if you're Apple and you know that ESPN is looking for cash investors because they really need to figure that out and you can do something where you're splitting a lot of these games, you're figuring out how you can operate with an ESPN and how ESPN can really learn and benefit aside from the cash from the tech giant that is Apple, there's a really healthy potential partnership there where also you're not necessarily going to cannibalize each other's audiences. I think the other problem where this comes up quite a bit is that you hear a lot of analysts or you hear a lot of executives talk about, well, we can create maybe a sports bundle, right? Like we can figure out a way that we're going to work with other companies and, and we'll f- figure out a way to bring everything together and like recreate what is the last vestige of pay TV in the OTT world just for sports. But I think that gets into ironically, almost like the HBO Max question where people were like, oh, it's no longer, you know, the HBO app. And HBO was ne- was never supposed to be the one network you watch, right? It was, a, it was a network you watched on top of everything else. Sports was an offering on top of all the other entertainment and the news that made it worthwhile. And you could only do so because you were collecting, you know, profit margins of 25, 30, 35%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. And so I think the reality of what we're going to see take place is more small leagues go the Apple route. And if you're the bigger leagues, you're going to split up the packages of your games to try and monetize the revenue that you have to bring in and also extend your reach somehow. But the reality is, is that we are probably going to see a lot of these different media networks operate at a loss for some time as they try to figure this out. And and we don't know if they actually will figure it out in the current landscape. I think Apple's probably pretty happy with how MLS is going. The fact that the Miami team won with Messi and it sort of became a thing, even if they don't share the ratings, I got to think they're happy with this. It's their first big, big sports thing. And it, it at least is making a little bit of noise. Well, and the other thing we didn't touch on is that Apple and Amazon are global. And you are talking to the leagues at a time when they are like, we want to be more global. Right. Yeah, you see that with football. I know that was one of the big things that the NFL liked about Amazon going with Thursday Night Football 
And so when you're thinking about, okay, well, what is Disney going to be able to do? What is Warner Brothers Discovery going to be able to do versus what can Apple and Amazon do? I mean, what can YouTube do, right? I wrote a piece a while back that I, like YouTube, I think really is. Yeah, Craig's favorite. He wants everything on YouTube. Craig, I'm with you. I I look. I want everything on YouTube, and so YouTube is also when we talk about the globalization of entertainment alongside the commodification of attention and this kind of infinite level of content to watch. YouTube checks off every single box. Like they are both the problem and also the solution in a lot of ways. Google and Alphabet, uh, their own company, of course, Alphabet, Amazon, and Apple have the means, have the devices, have the accounts, have the country penetration to be able to do this in a way that you can see Netflix kind of toying with, where they're really in that walk, crawl, run mantra that they that they very much pride themselves on, but they don't necessarily have the testing yet to figure out, can we carry this? What is the latency? Are people in our countries in South Korea interested in the NBA? Like, is that something that we really want to make? Because these global entertainment companies are thinking globally. The leagues are beginning to think globally. And so that opens up a whole other conversation about reach, monetization, and attention. Bottom line, the linear networks are screwed once again. Apple wins. Biggest company in the world. All right. Thank you, Julia. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We are back with the call sheet. My daily prediction. Craig, are you a big Liam Neeson guy? You know, I actually have never seen Taken or any of the sequels. Oh, that's the good one. Schindler's List. I've seen Gangs of New York. I like Liam Neeson. Sure. Who doesn't? There's a Liam Neeson movie coming out this weekend. And I'm going to give you a little quiz here. There have been a bunch of Taken ripoffs since that movie came out. Liam Neeson does like one or two a year, it seems. I'm going to give you five names of recent Liam Neeson movies. Five? Okay. Five. And you're going to have to tell me which one is fake. All right? Number one, Retribution. Number two, The Marksman. Number three, Blacklight. Number four, Conundrum. And number five, Memory. Which is the fake Liam Neeson movie? Um, Conundrum. Oh, good one. That's fake. I made that up. Nice. The others are real movies that actually happen, that all of which <laughs> debuted to $3.5 million in theaters or less. And that is the prediction for Retribution this weekend when it debuts in theaters. We're not going to do an over-under on that. It's too sad. I mean, this is the dumping ground of the movie season, late August. This is when you put out either your screw-ups or your genre movies that are just getting a release just for the premium video on demand release. Why is that? Why isn't late August a hotter time? I don't really understand because kids are going back to school. Yeah, kids are going back to school and everyone's kind of wrapping things up. And, you know, it just hasn't traditionally been. I mean, Labor Day is not traditionally a big weekend for movies, although they had Shang-Chi a couple of years ago do really well. And that sort of the pandemic kind of screwed everything up. And Labor Day is a big weekend. And I think Equalizer 3 will probably do well this Labor Day. But typically, last couple of weeks of summer and the first week or two of September, not not big for movies. But they got a Sony movie this weekend, Gran Turismo. That is the video game adaptation. Neil Blomkamp from uh, District 9 is directing. It's kind of like a meta movie. It's about a kid who's like super good at Gran Turismo who like ends up being in the Gran Turismo, I think. Don't check me yeah. on that. That may be wrong. But $60 million cost for this one. And the tracking is at about 14, 15. It's actually come up a little bit. It was at like 11, 12 earlier this week. Um, but the tracking's up to almost 15. I'm going to take the under on this. 
I probably have to agree with you. I actually played Gran Turismo as a kid. I remember the video game. And are you remotely interested in the movie? No, I'm not. I, I, I like David Harbour. I can't remember the last time I've seen Orlando Bloom in a movie. But I know he looks weird now, too. Orlando Bloom looks a little weird. Also, the wild card on this weekend is on Sunday. It's that national movie going day where all tickets are four dollars. I mean, honestly, I don't know if that's going to help or hurt because the people who might have seen Gran Turismo are just going to pay less to see it. Right. Well, what's an average ticket across America? Eight, ten dollars. So, uh, yeah, it's about ten bucks. The price. Yeah, right. ten bucks. So like you need four times the people to go see the movie, if it, you know, or three times the people to see the movie to make a profit on that. But maybe people will think Gran Turismo is worth it for four dollars. I don't. I don't know. I think people are just <laughs> going to go know. back and see Barbie again. Yeah. All right, we'll see. I've been doing okay this summer. I I had a mixed result last weekend, though. I missed on Blue Beetle. It underperformed, but I Mm -hmm. was correct in that Strays completely tanked. Maybe we should do a check-in on your predictions halfway through the year before we get into fall and winter. That's a good idea. I think I'll be okay. I think I'm in the money so far, but we'll check that. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Julie Alexander, producer Craig Holbeck, editor Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.